This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most urgent and exciting political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. N Plus One's brand new issue, Take Care, is newly available in print and online and is full of great pieces that Dig listeners will enjoy. One that might be of particular interest is Eye to Eye with the Beast by the historian Meg Weeks. A scholar of Latin American social movements, Weeks examines the history of reproductive rights in Brazil and reports on the grassroots efforts led by a cross-class coalition of women to challenge Brazil's restrictive anti-abortion legislation and decriminalize abortion across the country. Dig listeners can take 25% off a subscription at nplusonemag.com slash the dig. Enter the dig, one word, at checkout to get three issues delivered in the mail, plus full access to 16 years of paywalled essays, reviews, and fiction, all for less than $3 a month. That's N-P-L-U-S-O-N-E-M-A-G. Dot com slash the dig enter the dig one word at checkout welcome to the dig a podcast from jacobin magazine my name is daniel denver and i'm broadcasting from providence rhode island this week, my guest is the scholar Sharice Burdenstelli, and we're talking about some intertwined issues that she works on. Racial capitalism, the history of black leftism, and how the U.S. state combined anti-communism and anti-black racism to repress the black left. We cover a lot of ground in this interview because Burdenstelli covers a whole lot of ground in her work, and I will link to some of that work that I read to prepare for this interview in the show notes. I highly recommend that you give it a read. Before we get started, though, this show is listener-supported, and our listeners support us at patreon.com slash the dig. Patreon, for those of you who don't know, is a website that allows you to make a monthly donation to support things that you want to support, like the dig. If you are a regular listener, you've probably heard me say this all before, but if you are a regular listener and you can afford to contribute and you have not done so yet, I ask you to consider taking a moment today to make that contribution. Most podcasts get you to contribute by paywalling bonus episodes, and zero shade on them. I totally get why they do that. People need to get paid for podcasts to get made. But we here at The Dig have figured out a different model that allows us to provide every single episode to everyone, regardless of your ability to pay. And that's extremely important to us for political reasons. And the reason we can afford to do that is because those of you who can afford to contribute do so at patreon.com slash the dig. We also have left-wing books, mugs, tote bags that we can send you in the mail as a sign of our gratitude. Please, if you like this podcast and you can afford to contribute, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. We will also be hosting Sharice Burdenstelli for our final Dig Book Club event, Sunday, April 25th at 2 p.m. Check the show notes for more info. 
Okay, here we go. Charisse Berdenstelli is a visiting scholar in the Race and Capitalism Project at the University of Chicago and a professor of Africana Studies and Political Science at Carleton College. A scholar of critical black studies, political theory, political economy, and intellectual history, she is the co-author with Gerald Horn of W.E.B. Du Bois, A Life in American History, a member of the Black Alliance for Peace Coordinating Committee, the host of The Last Dope Intellectual Podcast, and co-editor of the Black Agenda Review. Charisse Bird and Steli, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. To start out, what's racialization and how historically has it operated as a force within capitalism? Yeah, so when I talk about processes of racialization, I talk about the ways in which race or color as an ascriptive category starts to take on social, political, and economic consequences, such that those who are deemed to belong to a particular racial group are also deemed to belong to a particular station in a racial hierarchy. So in in our modern racial hierarchy, it tends to be the case that uh, those racialized as Black are at the bottom of this hierarchy. And in my work, the way that I think about processes of racialization is number one, that they change and transform over time, but there's also a particular consistency or continuity within different regimes of racialization, so to speak. So for example, we move from, let us say, Jim Crow to a multiculturalism or a post-racial formation, but yet and still there are there are material processes that continue to impact differently racialized bodies. And then this relates to capitalism because For me, the upshot of processes of racialization is accumulation and economic exploitation and the degree to which that is rationalized and legitimated from particular types of groups. We often hear that race is a social construct, but I think what we don't often hear enough is constructed to what end? Yeah, you know, race as a social construct is just kind of like word garbage. (laughs) It's like people say it, but it doesn't really mean very much. It's meant to, I guess, distinguish between the biological usage to which uh, race has been harnessed. But to your point, when we say race is a social construct, just because it's, it's socially constructed doesn't mean it doesn't have material consequences, right? And so race continues to reproduce, maintain, and reify precisely for material and structural consequences, so to speak. And so, again, in my estimation, the social realities of race are to dictate and determine who gets what, when, and how much, and on what terms. And, you know, race as a social construction adheres to what Ruthie Wilson Gilmore calls uh, exposure to premature death. You write, quote, the discourse of colorblindness, that race doesn't matter because we are all human, is the latest iteration of racialization. Such thinking not only masks the real exclusion of those marked by race, but also eschews policies that are specifically aimed at helping those who have suffered historically from processes of racialization. Colorblindness supports and reproduces enduring racial structures. The colorblind emphasis on tolerance effectively translates to the tolerance of gross inequity because the latter is considered just another form of difference. I thought a lot about this over the years, and I'm wondering now, how does colorblindness fit with the reemergence in recent years of this more explicit racism 
and unapologetic racism on the U.S. and European far right on the one hand, but also a certain liberal fixation on certain formulations of race on the other. The liberal media, after all, is full of talk about race if we take the New York Times as a case in point. True on the front page, business section, and the bestseller list, which of course is loaded with books about racism and white fragility and whatnot. Well, I think that color blindness sits alongside the other uh, racial regimes that you talk about, whether it's, you know, what we are referring to now as fascism or neo-fascism, or whether it's identity reductionism. Um, I prefer identity reductionism to race reductionism in terms of everything being reducible to uh, a particular identity. And I think colorblindness still operates when you look at different types of Supreme Court decisions, or you look at the attack on affirmative action, especially by other racialized groups. So, you know, uh, recently uh, Asian American groups have been very hostile to affirmative action and its ostensible preference for Black Americans. There was also a case, it, it was in some city where a portion of the COVID-19 relief money was set aside specifically to help beleaguered Black communities who are being ravaged by COVID-19 at very, very alarming rates. A group of white and, and Latinx folks actually sued the city for setting aside that money. And so that lends to a, a particular colorblind logic that race should not be taken into account when building out public policy or when allocating resources, when indeed, and in fact, we see the persistence and in fact, the exacerbation of, of racialized forms of inequality. And so what colorblindness does is it, it legitimates or rationalizes those forms of inequality by saying that it is discrimination or bias or inequality in and of itself to, to, recognize those inequalities. And that sits alongside the resurgence of, let us say, white nationalism, the resurgence or the entrenchment of particular types of racial parochialism among classes of Black so-called leaders. But all of this has to do, in my estimation, with the struggle over resources, rights, and recognition. And often, what regimes of racialization do is, especially liberal regimes of racialization, is prop up recognition and representation over and above redistribution. And so it tends to subsume the economic aspects of demands for equality to having what I would call a few chips in the cookie in terms of representation, you know, corporations celebrating Black History Month or Juneteenth or what have you. These come to stand in for actual material economic policies that would not only serve the racial groups whose names they're enacted in, but society as a whole. Because the reality of the United States is that there will never be anything done for Black people that doesn't benefit society as a whole or that doesn't benefit other groups. And I think affirmative action is a case in point because, as we know, it is white women who, since you know the 1980s, have benefited most from affirmative action programs. And so that's my sense of where we are with colorblindness. I'm thinking, could we also see colorblindness quite perversely on a right wing that is on the one hand, again, like more unapologetically racist than it's been in a while, calling Mexicans rapists, but that also finds some sort of legitimation or feels like it needs to find some sort of legitimation in putting forward figures like Diamond and Silk. For all the shit that the right talks on diversity, they still feel some commitment to some of this kind of liberal diversity politics in their own way. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that race reductionism or race hustling or <laughs> the manipulation of race is just a liberal policy. I think that white folks do it all the time. They just do it in the name of whiteness. And if we follow Gerald Horn, we know that whiteness is simply a militarized imperial identity politics. So I think we need to understand that as well. And, and white folks are always harnessing, weaponizing and deploying whiteness in ways that are part of the contestation over resources, access. But oftentimes, it, you know, especially when we think about, I would say, working class or poor whites, oftentimes their racial identity is not necessarily used to get more for themselves, but to ensure that other racialized groups don't get anything, right? To me, this is evident with somebody, I want to say the man's name is Mnuchin, who is the- Mansion. Mansion, excuse me, Mansion. Mnuchin's another asshole. <laughs> right, right. Where he, you know, he's against raising the minimum wage when West Virginia, which is a disproportionately white state, they're extremely poor. They're suffering in many ways in terms of, of economic disinvestment. And yet their representative, the person who they put in office to to represent them in Congress is voting against their own interests. So, so it's a case then where whiteness, where white identity politics serves to mystify white people's economic interests to white people. Precisely. But I do also want to note that it happens with black people as well. When the interests of what I refer to as the niggerati or the black petty bourgeoisie stands in for the interests of black people as a whole. It's the same type of mystifying logic because elite interests are not the interests of poor, working class, marginalized and oppressed black people. So I think it, it works in both of those cases. That obviously was a major factor under Obama, who remains incredibly popular among many, many black Americans. To what degree do you see those sorts of politics playing out around the notion of Kamala Harris's historic vice presidency? Yeah, I think it's exacerbated with Kamala Harris because not only is she the first black vice president, she's also the first South Asian vice president and also the first vice president of Caribbean descent. And a woman. And a woman, right? So there's all of these different, quote unquote, intersectional identities that she can weaponize to evade critique about her imperialism, about her warmongering, about her carcerality, um, about the ways in which she, alongside Joe Biden, have walked back virtually every campaign promise that they made from canceling student loan debt to raising the minimum wage to the $2,000 survival checks, which became $1,400 and then came much, much later. And so... As racialized folk, Black folk in particular, it can be quite confusing because on the one hand, Kamala will be subjected to anti-Blackness and to what's called massage noir. And so people will want to defend her against that. And it's very hard to hold that alongside also critiquing her horrible, violent, <laughs> diabolical foreign policy and, and also some of her domestic policy. Just as Obama's presidency and Obama as a person were certainly hit hard with racist attacks, including by Hillary Clinton during the primary. Precisely. Part of what I often point out is that folks can be race radicals, but still be completely backward, so to speak, when it comes to class or capitalism or imperialism. And so this is why we need to have both a race and a class analysis, because if we only look at racism, then there's a way, again, where the subjection of particular classes of Black people to racism makes it seem as if we have the same 
interests or the same goals or the same material realities. And that's that's simply not the case. What do you make of Trump's surprising ability to rally more voters of color to this unapologetically right-wing nationalist agenda in 2020 than he did in 2016? Do you think that Trump's success in some ways reflects that liberal and neoliberal Democratic Party talk about race, that it fails often to correspond to the complex ways that people live raced realities under contemporary American capitalism and empire? You know, I think that... You know, somehow Trump has been able to convince black folks that he has their economic interests in mind, not least, you know, the meeting that he had with Ice Cube about, you know, the contract with black America, you know, him meeting with members of like the black clergy and all of the things that he's done for um, black folks economically. And so I think that there's that particular appeal. I think that black folks have also not forgotten about Joe Biden's participation in the crime bill, the 1994 uh, crime bill. And so this is not to say that Trump, by any stretch of the imagination, is an abolitionist. But I think (laughs) that people are taking seriously the maladies and the patronizing nature and the neglect of the Democratic Party. And in a two-party system, it's the Democrats or the Republicans, you know, notwithstanding people who vote for third parties. Plus, I think, you know, Trump is an anti-establishment candidate. And I think that that's appealing all around to certain groups of people, irrespective of race. I, that was part of Obama's appeal, right? Ostensibly, he was a, you know, compared to Hillary, he was not the establishment candidate. And yet there's this liberal commitment to the idea that the Democratic Party affirming we see you, we are inclusive of you. And then asserting that Republicans are racist, Republicans are racist, that those two things together will do the trick for everyone. Yeah, Republicans are racist, but so are Democrats, and they all have the <laughs> same funders. And the other thing, too, is that the problem with the Democrats is that, yeah, they, they might have this sort of rainbow coalition whereby they'll have, you know, a couple blacks a trans person, you know, they've got a Native American, but they all have the same politics. And so it's a diversity of body. And this is what we mean by identity reductionism. And I, I, you know, I've started to use that term uh, from my comrade Erica Keynes from Black Alliance uh, for Peace. This is what we mean by identity reductionism, where only the identity matters, the politics, the policy, and the past actions fall away if you have somebody that is minoritized and the more minoritized, the better, right? So if she's black and a woman, there starts to be all of these sort of intersections that matter over and above what these people actually are invested in materially. Again, for people who don't have any political education or any um, ideological grounding, it can seem like a good thing, you know, because certainly a black woman would be more progressive than Donald Trump, so to speak, or so we think. But when we look at what the actual policies are and who is actually funding these people and the fact that they actually are still sort of beholden to the corporatocracy, then those identities become much, much less relevant. You cite the mid-20th century sociologist Oliver Cromwell Cox as writing, quote, The slave trade was simply a way of recruiting labor for the purpose of exploiting the great natural resources of America. This trade did not develop because Indians and Negroes were red and black, but simply because they were the best workers to be found for the heavy labor in the mines and plantations across the Atlantic. This, then, is the beginning of modern race relations. It was not an abstract, natural, or immemorial feeling of mutual antipathy between groups, but rather 
a practical exploitative relationship is seems really similar to the argument made by Barbara and Karen Fields and racecraft and to me seems rather straightforward and if profound yet there is this persistent attraction to a primordial account of racism among liberals and some on the left what accounts for this liberal attachment to the notion that racism is some sort of transcendent feature of white people something that uncomfortably echoes biological racism on the right. I mean, I guess I should say, I don't think there's anything primordial about white supremacy or racism, but I do think that there's something enduring and historical, period. Like, And so I think that what happens, and again, if you don't have a structural historical analysis, then it seems like it's inherent. But I do think that, especially in the context of the United States, the overwhelming majority of white people have proven themselves to have more race solidarity than class solidarity, period. And I think that this bears out historically. I think the analysis is incorrect, but I think that, you know, the fact that, what, 78 million or 74 million people, majority of whom were white, voted for Trump, that's not insignificant. And it's not reducible to their class position as people like to um, equate it with because it's across all categories. Of course, it goes down as income goes up and as education rises, but nonetheless, there's a majority or plurality in each group. (laughs) So how do you explain that? But again, I think that the narration of why that's the case or the explanation of why that's the case becomes a sort of idealism or about always already or always has been or whatever, because when we start talking about class and there's other, there's other things that need to be considered. So I always say, for example, like, The U.S. is constitutively anti-Black and anti-radical, with anti-radical being sort of having a strong aversion to class analysis because of the ways in which class collaboration has been essential to accumulation and dispossession. Speaking of primordialism, you wrote a brilliant, rather critical review in the Boston Review of a very popular book by Isabel Wilkerson called Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. What does Cast argue and why, at this moment in time, does it have the sort of appeal that earned it 32 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list? Well, first of all, it seems to me that we don't expect very much out of Black scholarship, we being the dominant society. I think that if Black people can say bullshit beautifully or compellingly, then we're fine with that. It doesn't necessarily have to be rigorous or correct or historical or reflective of of reality. So that's the first thing. The second thing I think is what caste does is it gives a particular explanation of the racial state or our current racialized reality, not least the rise of Trump without ever having to use the word capitalism. And so I stated in that review that the word capitalism does not appear in the book at all. It allows for a a very lazy, ham-fisted, inaccurate conflation of class, race, and other forms of ascriptive difference that result in an equitable distribution of resources. The other appeal of the book, I think, is that, as I state in the review, it allows for the elite preferences of a particular class of Black people to be representative of the Black reality itself. And so, you know, anecdotes and vignettes about different slights and forms of bias to which Wilkerson and her class comrades were subjected 
are meant to show that no matter how meritocratic, no matter how achieving, no matter how successful Black people are, they're still Black, <laughs> you know, and they are still, they still don't aren't accorded the respect of white folks. And so that becomes a manifestation in her mind of caste, of this immutable, enduring system that no matter what Black people do, they can't get out of it. And to Oliver Cox's point, if you exchange the word race for the word caste, you get the same analysis. And so this return to caste, again, is a way to explain dynamics without having any sort of analysis of political economy, so to speak. And you end up with a tautology. Exactly. How do you define racism? Uh, by this word, by which I just mean racism. Exactly. <laughs> and and I mean, and the other part of that is there could be something sort of fecund or generative about comparing a racial capitalist society like the United States with a caste society like India without saying this is that. You know, just because a cat has fur doesn't make it a dog. So just because there are outcomes in a race, a racialized society that are similar to outcomes in a caste society doesn't make this a caste society. And that mystification is not useful. And it conceals, again, a particular class project endemic in this usage of caste that evades class. Something that I actually left out of that review that one of my comrades, um, Alyssa Adamson, reminded me was that it was actually Michelle Alexander who used racial caste in her book, The New Jim Crow, and everybody loved that book. I was not a fan. I thought it was a lazy analogy, among many other things. But in that book, she wrote, quote, the aim of this book is not to venture into the long running vigorous debate in the scholarly literature regarding what does and does not constitute a caste system. I use the term racial caste in this book the way it is used in common parlance to denote a stigmatized racial group locked into an inferior position by law and custom. Jim Crow and slavery were caste systems. So was our current system of mass incarceration. Well, Jim Crow and slavery were not caste systems. Jim Crow and slavery were particular racial regimes in the context of, of a capitalist society. So this is why she doesn't wait into the debate, because when you wait into the debate, you see that it's been disproved that we live in a caste society. And so... It's a lazy analogy, and it's even worse to, to not even use it as an analogy to say that this is an actually existing caste society. As an aside, the New Jim Crow did a lot to elevate, obviously, the monstrosity of mass incarceration in the carceral state as an issue. But I don't think most people who are aware of the book or have read it know that many historians of mass incarceration in the carceral state take issue with a lot of aspects of it. Exactly. And that this is the problem, is that when we get this pop scholarship— Neither Michelle Alexander or Isabel Wilkerson are academics. And that's fine, right? It's not to say that knowledge production is only the domain of academics. But I do think that there's a, a particular way in which the analogy or the storytelling or the sometimes hyperbole can stand in for the, the history, right? And the context and the details that actually matter. And so, you know, I would go to, let us say, Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore or, or Marie Gottschalk or others for my analysis of mass or hyper-incarceration because I think that that level of detail and rigor and historicizing is very, very important, even though the analogical is perhaps more attractive. I think this is something you've touched on in a few different pieces, but there's a way in which certain black figures, often writers, become 
individual sort of super representatives of all of black America to white liberal America. Yeah, because white people are racist. <laughs> Just kidding. But 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 that but that it you know, but that is a, a a manifestation of a sort of racialized understanding where that black is as good as that one. And you know, because there's no fundamental difference, one can speak for the whole. Or if one again can say something articulate or pithy, then then they are fit to be a leader, number one. And number two, then surely they must be correct. This is why W.E.B. Du Bois throughout the late 19th and early 20th century called for rigorous social scientific study of, of the Black experience and the Black condition because of the ways in which historically white perspective, white perception, and white mythology have stood in for rigorous study because whatever white folks believe about Black people must be true. Right. Because black people are outside of reason, rationality and history. Therefore, you know, whatever we think about them must be so. I see a similar thing happening where any old thing can be said about, you know, race relations, as long as it's said by a a black person that has particular types of white support, whether it's on the right wing side with Candace Owens or on the liberal side with your, you know, Isabel Wilkerson's. That term race relations, it's almost like applying the same frame to racism in America as we do to the Israeli occupation of Palestine when we call it the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's kind of like shorthand. It's sort of like the Negro problem or the Negro question, just like the woman question. You know, it's another form of mystification, which is, I think, prevalent in, in the United States when it comes to dealing with complex issues like you know, racism or white supremacy or what we call racial capitalism. Why does identifying the actual origins of racial hierarchy, both historically and in terms of how it's reproduced over time, why does that offer, as you write, the, quote, keys to dismantling the system? What are the stakes of getting these analyses right? Why is it a problem that they're so often got wrong? Well, I think it's less about identifying the quote unquote correct origins, right? Because there's a, so for example, there's a long standing debate about whether race and racialization led to enslavement or whether enslavement led to discourses or narrations of, of racism or racial hierarchy. I think that that's less important than to realize that at some point, at a particular historical moment, these things became mutually reinforcing. That is to say, the economic imperatives of capitalism and the forms of racial hierarchy that that sustain and reproduce and give meaning to them, right? And it's important to see how this is operating over time in particular contexts because when we accurately name what is, we have a better understanding of how to challenge that and then what is to come. But... If there's constant evasions of the actual dynamics, then we continue to engage in reformism or in forms of, let us say, mollification that don't actually get at the root of the problem. In the United States, the largest evasion, in my perspective, is the economic because we live in a sort of capitalist society. And then this is intimately linked to racial hierarchy because of the ways in which I believe what people I think would call super profit is extracted from groups who are at the bottom. The groups who they're not only wage laborers, but, you know, they work for extremely low wages or no wages at all. And then you can brutalize this group 
You can put them in dilapidated housing, giving them the worst and most extreme forms of labor. You can give them no recourse in the courts. You can subject them to mob violence. And that's all okay because of their role in the sort of the social hierarchy. But this is a, again, in my sort of estimation and my work, it's not only economic, but it largely serves an economic function. This is a good time to discuss racial capitalism, I think. It's recently become a popular term in social sciences, the humanities, just in in left politics generally. But I think that for many, there's a bit of a lack of clarity as to what it means. What is racial capitalism? Or better put, what do various people mean by the term racial capitalism? When I think that people use racial capitalism, I do not think that they're trying to imply that there is a non-racial capitalism, that there's a form of capitalism in which race is not important. But I think that when people talk about racial capitalism, we're talking about the ways in which processes of racialization or racecraft or modes of racial hierarchy inform and are informed by capitalist exploitation and vice versa. And so somebody like Michael Dawson, for example, doesn't use racial capitalism. He talks about race and capitalism because for him, there are other structures like patriarchy and imperialism and white supremacy that fall out of definitions of racial capitalism. I don't personally share that perspective. I think that, you know, I have a a particular definition of racial capitalism that encompasses all of those things. But in the final analysis, I think that what people are saying is that the race versus class debate is trite and inaccurate, that you must understand these things together. I think that that's the sort of upshot. Yeah. And I think even though Michael Dawson doesn't think racial capitalism is the term to use that you two would agree on on that point. Does some of this confusion and debate around racial, the term racial capitalism, does it relate to the sort of argument that Cedric Robinson was making in his classic book, Black Marxism, The Making of the Black Radical Tradition? Some people follow Cedric Robinson, but then, you know, we have to give credit to uh, Peter James Hudson, who uncovered South African genealogy of racial capitalism through people like Alexander Neville, who were looking at the South African situation and arguing that the apartheid system and the, you know, the, the racial logics of the apartheid system informed the ways in which capitalist accumulation and exploitation operated in South Africa. And so you needed to take into account both the sort of the, the racial system as well as the economic system to understand South African society. For myself, I look at, you know, Black communist thinkers who use the term super exploitation, which to me is an early articulation of racial capitalism when they're arguing that there's a form of a form of exploitation that black people who are at the intersection of exploitation and oppression suffer a form of exploitation over and above that of of the white working class. And so I think that there's different ways to get at it. I will say that I feel like most people who use the term racial capitalism came to it through either Cedric Robinson or Robin Kelly's treatment of Cedric Robinson. So what was Robinson's argument about what racial capitalism was? He had a complex relationship with Marxism. I haven't read the book, though I'm planning on interviewing Kelly about it later this year. How did he approach Marxism and how that could explain what he saw as racial capitalism? And how does that differ from from how you see things? For him, processes of racialization were 
present in the feudal order and there's no really radical break between the feudal and the capitalist order if one looks at racializing logics and this idea that the white proletariat is a sort of radical or revolutionary formation is not accurate because number one, within themselves, for example, between like the Irish and the British or, you know, different white groups like the Slavs, there was all of these sort of ethnic differentiations, which he he, he calls racialism. And so there was not a cohesive white working class that sort of overthrew the feudal order. Anyway, the moral of his story, basically, or or I think part of what he's trying to get at is that there's another way to think about radical or revolutionary struggle that is not necessarily linked to Marxism. And then he also has a whole argument about how, you know, Marxist sort of Eurocentrism and nationalism that's rooted in a particular type of, of racialism. So... He doesn't actually offer a robust definition of racial capitalism in that book. He's more concerned with the the Black radical tradition. For me, I look at the capitalist system as such and think about the ways in which racial hierarchy, specifically racial hierarchy with, with Blackness at the bottom, is coterminous with and constitutive of the capitalist world economy and how processes like super exploitation, expropriation uh, by domination, dispossession, and white supremacist property regimes constitute the system. And so these relations of exchange between individuals and firms, like that's not actually capitalism. (laughs) That's not actually what's happening, right? And so I try to name the processes that are actually happening that facilitate accumulation and that endless accumulation in ways that reproduce and are predicated upon both crisis and like gross inequality that fall along what W.E.B. Du Bois called the color line. You, as you write, quote, theorize modern U.S. racial capitalism as a racially hierarchical political economy constituting war and militarism, imperialist accumulation, expropriation by domination, and labor superexploitation. The racial here specifically refers to blackness, defined as African descendants' relationship to the capitalist mode of production, their structural location, and the condition, status, and material realities emanating therefrom. It is out of this structural location that the irresolvable contradiction of value minus worth arises. Stated differently, Blackness is a capacious category of surplus value extraction, essential to an array of political economic functions, including accumulation, disaccumulation, debt, planned obsolescence, and absorption of the burdens of economic crises. At the same time, blackness is the quintessential condition of disposability, expendability, and devalorization. It's a powerful argument, and there's a lot there, and I want to unpack it in a few pieces. First, what is the structural position of black people within the capitalist mode of production and how does that position facilitate super exploitation and these forms of dispossession that go beyond the standard wage labor relationship? So something that Gerald Horn illuminated for me a while back is that in the American context, the Civil War was effectively the largest expropriation in history, right? Because white slave owners were not compensated by and large. And so if we really think deeply about this, like the unfolding of U.S. history has been the effort to get their property back 
<laughs> in all sorts of different ways, whether it's convict leasing, whether it's sharecropping, whether it's debt peonage, whether it's hyper incarceration, whether it's redlining, whether, you know, all of these processes that are meant to squeeze every bit of value out of black people. So if you look at redlining, for example, in the petition we charge genocide, they talk about how it's commonly understood that ghettoization or, or the locking of black people into ghettos is very, very profitable. They're charged exorbitant rents for dilapidated conditions. Insurance companies charge exorbitant rates. There's a way in which the value of properties around red line areas go down. And then, you know, the whole phenomenon of blockbusting. So there's all of this money to be made off of blackness. But at the same time, the other side to that is that blackness is narrated or is understood to be sort of disposable, expendable, last hired, first fired, which is like an economic function. But it also points to black folks as not only precarious, but again, but just disposable. And so this is a this is a contradiction that to me conceals a sort of economic function of blackness. And so to, this is what I, I just call that a structuring aporia. And it's for all kinds of obvious reasons, it serves capitalism quite well to have a race group of people that these sorts of things, which would otherwise be marked as abnormal, can be done to. When we're thinking about expropriation, this is true in terms of Black people in the United States, but also the approach to Black spaces or African spaces, right? And so the fact that you can go in and wage war in the name of, you know, democracy or freedom with the sole purpose of going to take resources. And this primarily happens in racialized spaces. So, you know, Africa, the Caribbean, or in Asia. So there's this whole idea that White folks can just go in, imperial nations can just go in and take the resources from the African continent, for example, through all of these discourses of governance, of failed states, of prior to that, it was the, through civilization narratives or through narratives of underdevelopment. So there's all of these ways in which spaces that Black people inhabit are ripe for plunder, Right. And this has bared out historically. And so this is sort of what I'm trying to get at in that definition of racial capitalism, but also in this idea of value minus worth. Then why does blackness occupy a unique position within racial capitalism, given the various ways that race and racism have functioned throughout capitalist history across the globe? Why does blackness occupy a position within racial capitalism that is distinct from, say, indigeneity? I, I take it you're not saying, oh, one group's oppression is worse than the other, but rather that this is related to a specific place of blackness functionally under capitalism. The situation of indigenous folks in the United States has largely been one of both dispossession and extermination. There hasn't been an extermination campaign against black people, but it has been genocidal, right? And so part of what is pointed out in We Charge Genocide, which is the, the petition filed to the United Nations by the Civil Rights Congress under the leadership of William Patterson in 1951. They argue that genocide, and this is part of the genocide convention definition, that it's trying to get rid of a group in whole or in part. And so the, the, the terrorism meted out against Black people is, again, to legitimate their exploitation and also to have a sort of captive group of surplus labor, but that also can sort of serve other sorts of economic functions. And so this is this is my analysis of blackness. And it's not to say that other forms of exploitation and oppression don't apply to other groups, but this is just the group that I focus on. In the context of the United States and the ways in which the United States as an imperial power relates to other African or black nations. 
I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. Verso just launched a new subscription service for readers to get ebooks and discounts every month. When you become a member of the Verso Book Club, you receive all of Verso's new ebooks every month, as well as one or more new books in the mail, plus 50% off all Verso books as long as you're a subscriber. To celebrate Verso's 50th anniversary, all member tiers are now at a discount of 50%. Choose between three membership tiers. The Verso Reader tier is a digital subscription for every new Verso ebook each month. Verso Subscriber for one book sent to you in the mail every month and all Verso ebooks. And Verso Comrade for two to three books sent to you by mail every month, plus all Verso ebooks. To celebrate Verso's 50th anniversary, each option is 50% off for your first three months. At this momentous time for global politics, Verso will bring you radical voices that challenge capitalism, racism, and patriarchy, debate the future of the planet, and work towards real political change. Sign up for the Verso Book Club at versobooks.com slash book club. That's versobooks.com slash book club. You mentioned the Communist Party-aligned civil rights Congress's 1951 We Charge Genocide, the historic petition to the United Nations for relief from a crime of the United States against the Negro people. There is tons of work making these kind of arguments about what came to be called racial capitalism at this time. You, throughout the entirety of the first half of the 20th century, you cite Du Bois's The African Roots of War, his monumental 1947 report submitted to the UN on behalf of the NAACP uh, entitled An Appeal to the World, a statement on the denial of human rights to minorities in the case of citizens of Negro descent in the United States of America, and an appeal to the United Nations for redress. You also make reference to Louise Thompson Patterson's Toward a Brighter Dawn. What role did Marxism play within black scholarship during this period? What role did it play in terms of scholarship about about race during the first half of the 20th century? And how did it fare in its ideological competition with the sort of racial liberalism put forward by people like Swedish sociologist Gunnar Myrtle? Yeah, so I think that Marxist-Leninism and, you know, later on Maoism offered up a tool to think about capitalism, class antagonism, and the role of of race and racialization for Black people and how it operated in that particular locality. And so I think, you know, there's this idea that Black Marxists or, you know, Black communists were stooges of, of the Kremlin and rigorously followed the party line. And I think it's true that there was a party line, but Black folks were contributing to challenging and expanding that party line all the time. And even, you know, amongst themselves, there were disagreements. So, for example, if you look at like the Black Belt Nation thesis, 
there are disagreements. There are people like Carrie Haywood who were very much for that form of analysis, and then people like Otto Huiswood and even Doxy Wilkerson who did not believe that the Black Belt formed a separate Black nation. And so Black people are thinking with Marxism, Leninism, but also updating, expanding, and, and revising what that actually looks like in Black communities and, and how that articulates to Black reality. And I think compared to Black liberalism, I think it is it's less popular. But if you look at the achievements of people who struggled under the banner of Marxism, Leninism, or who are um, in organizations adjacent to it, they have an outsized influence. For example, there was a lot of case law that came out of um, the Scottsboro case. So not least Powell v. Alabama, you know, which struck down sort of racism and, and jury selection. And so there's a way in which a lot of the things that radicals struggle for get co-opted and taken up by the state, but then because of intellectual McCarthyism, which is the erasure of the contributions, you know, the ideas and, and also material contributions of communists or socialists or revolutionary nationalists because of their ideology, we don't understand or we don't realize their immense contributions. So because racial liberalism is by and large consonant with the pedagogy of the state, we know much more about, for example, a Thurgood Marshall than we know about a William Patterson, you know, or we know about Brown v. Board of Education, but we don't know much about sort of Scottsboro or the Rosalie Ingram case. Or we know about, you know, the NAACP, but we don't necessarily know about the Civil Rights Congress. And so I call this knowing and not knowing intellectual McCarthyism. And I think it's important to understand because when we only study Black liberalism or when we try to read everything through a Black liberal framework, we miss the broader transformative or, or counter-hegemonic or liberatory project that is at the, the sort of intersection of Black liberation and socialism. I, I want to turn to your work on Black radical internationalism and the repressive anti-communist and anti-Black racist repression that it got met with. To start off, Cox, CLR James, and so many other Black radicals in the first half of the 20th century were from the Caribbean. What was it about the position of a West Indian in the United States that made it conducive for this sort of black radical internationalism? Alongside the sort of great migration around World War One, there was also a influx of West Indians to the United States. And in a general sense, one can argue that they came with a very developed class analysis because they came from relatively racially homogenous societies, but that were very much class stratified. And these places were also at the intersection of capitalism, colonialism, and imperialism. You know, you had somebody like Hubert Harrison who came from the, the Danish West Indies, and you had like Cyril Briggs, Richard B. Moore, Otto and Hermina Wieswood, they came from, I want to say, uh, Suriname. And of course, Marcus Garvey, who's not a Marxist, but also, you know, came from Jamaica. So you have this, this group of West Indians and, and Caribbean folks who came to the United States, especially concentrated in, in New York, who are coming not only from a sort of class stratified context, but then are subjected to like Jim Crow racism and the U.S. racial regime, so to speak. And so there's a, a militancy that a core group of Black Caribbean folks develop. And this is very, very concerning to the U.S. government, to say the least. Yeah, you've done some incredible work relating the history of xenophobia to anti-Black and anti-communist politics, writing that, quote, the repression of West Indians, Claudia Jones and Cyril Lionel, 
C.L.R. James, and U.S. radical Paul Robeson show that anti-foreignness applied not only to origin, but also to ideas in internationalist politics. Radical black internationalism in particular reified the black, irrespective of citizenship status, as an outsider that must be contained and circumscribed. It's a fascinating article because it wasn't just foreign people, but ideas that were deemed alien and thus foreign. How did internationalism and black struggle become so intertwined? And then how did the U.S. Cold War state combine anti-black racism on the one hand with anti-internationalist anti-communism on the other hand to repress all of that? If we follow the work of Gerald Horn, I think his canon is most illuminating in thinking about why it is that Black folks have generally struggled in the international arena. From his book, for example, Negro Comrades of the Crown, through to his book Cold War in the Hot Zone, or his his Southern Africa book, because Black citizenship has been tenuous at best, and because most of the struggles have been struggles against, you know, the U.S. state, the racial capitalist state, so to speak, Black people have forged relationships and forms of allyship and solidarity beyond U.S. borders. And this is really threatening to the United States, which imposes this idea of Americanism or true Americanism that's codified through its own ideals of freedom, generally meaning market freedom or freedom to die <laughs> because you you know are not guaranteed food, shelter, and clothing. Ideas of democracy that really are about procedural electoralism as opposed to true representation for all people. And then there's a there, whiteness, right? Whiteness is a sort of a, an implicit, often explicit U.S. ideal. And so Black people have often been construed as on the constitutive outside of the state or beyond the pale of those ideals. And so the ways in which we are able to sort of struggle for any type of, let us just say, simply holding the United States to its own legal, not only ideals, but its own legal framework has been to put the anti-Black violence on an international stage, right? So Black people have engaged in that form of international internationalism for a very long time. And often that internationalism has been construed as foreign-inspired, as un-American, as anti-American, and as subversive, not unlike the ways in which forms of radicalism, not least socialism and communism, have been construed. And so, and especially after the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, there's a way in which struggles for civil rights, especially militant struggles for civil rights, are red-baited as Bolshevik-inspired or abetting the Bolshevik line. Previous to that, during World War I, for example, there was a fear about Black pro-Germanism and the ways in which Germans were ostensibly rallying up the Negroes to be malcontented with their position. Prior to that, and even after that, through the sort of 1920s, the U.S. state was worried about Black pro-Japanese sentiment and the way that the Japanese were coming in and, again, cultivating allegiance among Black folks with the Japanese. And so there's this long history of the United States having anxieties about Black international connection and Black international sympathy. And this is very, very linked to its 
discourse of foreign inspiration. And I talk about in that article that you're mentioning, I don't use the term xenophobia, I use the term anti-foreignness in particular to point out the ways in which Black people, even when they're born in the United States and have been here for generations, are still considered to be foreign. And because of that sort of second-class citizenship, second-class at best, they're considered to be particularly susceptible to foreign ideas, and which is any idea that challenges the liberal, capitalist, white supremacist state. Hardcore Southern segregationists called even the most mild civil rights demands a communist conspiracy. But then, on the other hand, the liberal Cold War state embraced certain sorts of racial liberalism while repressing black radicals. How did the Cold War and global decolonization, which were two critical things during that era, shape the liberal American state's response to both Jim Crow and to black radicalism? Yeah, so as folks like Mary Dudziak and Gerald Hornigan, Penny Von Eschen and others have written about, there's a way in which the United States, as it ascends to, to global hegemony, starting in World War I, but certainly after World War II, not least through like the Bretton Woods Agreement, it has to gain the hearts and minds <laughs> and the markets of the decolonizing world, which is primarily African and Asian. And so there's a contradiction on the one hand between trying to form diplomatic relations with post-colonial societies on the one hand, and then racial terrorism that's happening in its own borders. And of course, in the context of the Cold War, the Soviet Union is pointing out these contradictions and pointing out the racial violence over and over. And so the United States has to make a particular racial concession but in order to do that, there's a class of Black folks that can be integrated in society. And there's a, there are representational concessions that can be made at the same time that you have to get rid of the radical and redistributive demands, which also means you have to get rid of the radical leaders like Paul Robeson, like Ben Davis, like Shirley Graham and W.B. Du Bois, like Vicki Garvin. You have to get rid of these people because these are people who are pushing for economic rights and sort of political rights, right? They're pushing for a structural transformation, not just inclusion. And so this is the context, I would say, of the Brown versus Board of Education case. And it's also the context of the ways in which the Red Scare, the second Red Scare, becomes one articulation of the Black Scare when it becomes less fashionable to be brutishly and overtly anti-Black. You start to red bait struggles for civil rights or for any form of access beyond the representational, these become construed as communist plots or as subversive or as an articulation of the whims of a foreign power. So for example, W.E.B. Du Bois is indicted in 1951 as an agent of a foreign power for none other than peace activism. And so there's a way in which you attack, especially Black leaders, number one, to sow fear in the hearts of all Black people, but then also to delegitimate and to criminalize these struggles that have nothing to do with foreign inspiration, but have everything to do with the brutalization, oppression, and exploitation of Black people. And then the other aversion to internationalism is the ways in which African-Americans and Black people throughout the diaspora, and, you know, so, for example, in Africa and the Caribbean and even in parts of Europe, are linking up their struggles and linking up their common fate and realizing the ways in which imperialism is operating both domestically in the United States and abroad and borrowing resources, meeting up in conferences, forging alliances and waging struggles against Euro-American hegemony and Euro-American domination. And this is exceedingly dangerous to 
United States domination, especially with the Soviet Union as a counterweight. And then Black people, right? The Black bourgeoisie also begins to participate in a particular type of Cold War liberalism, whereby, for example, when they start to advocate for decolonization, they say, well, if you don't support decolonization in Africa and the Caribbean, they'll go Soviet, right? They'll go communist. And so there's a way in which red baiting or this sort of anti-communism is used even by Black folks to advocate for decolonization. But then the type of decolonization that's implemented is one that lends to neocolonialism, so to speak, right? And you write that when Du Bois was indicted in 1951, that most of his former liberal colleagues, and he had many of them from his years as a key leader in the NAACP, were nowhere to be found. Yeah, but this is because, and this is not to defend them in any way, in any way but this is because of the, the dragnet of anti-communism. And so this is why, you know, I argue that communism is a sort of synecdoche, so to speak, or a metonym for all these different forms of radicalism and even militant liberalism that become criminalized. And so you, you can just call anything communist. And then that puts people at risk of losing their jobs, being denied access to particular venues to speak or to perform. They become ostracized in their communities. They become barred from particular organizations. So there's real material and political consequences to this red baiting. And so Du Bois's former colleagues who abandoned them, they did so in their own self-interest, but also because of the widespread nature of state repression and the forms of financial terrorism to which people were subjected, right? You know, when Du Bois is talking about his defense, he says, I never realized how expensive justice is. Because most of the people who are working on his case, in the case of his comrades in the Peace Information Center, were doing so pro bono, and it still cost $35,000 in 1951 money, right? And so it, it, it was costly, and it, could, it destroyed people's lives. Like Paul Robeson, once, you know, the full arm of the Cold War state came down upon him, his income went from $20,000 to $2,000 a year. So there are real consequences for having particular types of political convictions, but then you have people like, you know, like E. Franklin Frazier, who always stood by, stuck by Du Bois. You have Mary Church Terrell. And so these are people I respect and admire because even though they could then be subjected to surveillance and harassment, you know, they didn't abandon the left. Yeah. So there was this whole period prior to the Second Red Scare where there were all types of productive, sometimes very still tense and conflictual encounters between the black left and black liberals. And it seems like a big project of Cold War anti-Black communist repression was about sort of like severing those ties? Well, the conjuncture of anti-Blackness and anti-radicalism, you know, preceded the Cold War. So if we look at, for example, the 1920s and 1930s, so the precursor, for example, to the House Committee on Un-American Activities are two committees, the Fish Committees and the Dyes Committee. And the Dyes Committee, for example, targeted the National Negro Congress, which was one of these kind of popular front organizations. There were communists. There were some socialists, so like um, A. Philip Randolph. But then there were also some liberals who were part of this organization. And this organization was targeted by the Dyes Committee as ostensibly a communist front. And part of what the Dyes Committee would do, one of the questions that they would ask about whether or not one was a communist was if you believe in racial equality and if you had ever had a Black person in your home. And so there's a long, long history of 
McCarthyism, so to speak, which is why I talk about the law. You know, now I talk about the long way of McCarthyism. But previously I talked about the McCarthyist structure of feeling, which was meant to move this understanding of McCarthy-like practices and policies from the 1951 and 1954 moment to see how there's a, a very long history of this that all three branches of government participated in. One case study, an organization that Robeson and others were involved with, was the Council on African Affairs, which was persecuted out of existence in the 1950s. What was the CAA, and how did it connect domestic and global black politics? And then lastly, how did state repression lead to this split between liberals and radicals in the organization that ultimately destroyed it? Yeah, so the Council on African Affairs was basically an African advocacy organization that, you know, agitated against apartheid and then for for the, the decolonization and self-determination of the African continent. And so it included people like Max Jurgen was one of the founders when it was founded in 1937. So Max Jurgen, Paul Robeson, Louise Thompson Patterson, a very important figure named William Alphaeus Hunton and his wife, Dorothy Hunton. So William Alphaeus Hunton, the second printing of his biography just came out called Alphaeus Hunton, Unsung Valiant, written by his wife, Dorothy Hunton. I wrote the foreword for that, but he's a very, very important figure in the Council on African Affairs. And essentially what happened is around 1944-ish, Max Jurgen succumbed to Cold War pressure and began to talk about how the CAA was being taken over by these radical elements. And he began to work with the state to sort of red bait the CAA and say, like, the communists needed to be rooted out. There was a sort of fight that ensued and the radicals won out. Max Jurgen was pushed out. He again began to work for the state and the CAA was increasingly subjected to all of these investigations from the IRS, from the Subversive Activities Control Board, which again is extremely expensive. And if you don't turn over particular names or documentation, you could be held in contempt of court and be imprisoned. In fact, Alphaeus Hunting was in prison, not because of the CAA, but because he refused to turn over the names of Bell Fund contributors for the, the Civil Rights Congress. But yeah, so the Council on African Affairs ultimately folded in 1955 because of this state pressure. But it was a sort of precursor to the, the broad-based anti-apartheid movement that took off in the 1980s. It was doing that work decades before. You write about a lot of remarkable figures, and I'd like to talk about a few more, starting with Claudia Jones. Who who was she? What drew her to the Communist Party? And how, over a decade and a half, did the U.S. government use anti-communist immigration laws to persecute her? Claudia Jones was a leader in the Communist Party USA before she was deported in 1955, where she remained active somewhat in the Communist Party of Great Britain and also became the editor of the West Indian Gazette and started a carnival there. But while she was here, you know, in the 1930s, she was attracted to the Communist Party because of their work on the Scottsboro case and the ways in which they linked the Scottsboro case to the invasion of Ethiopia in 1935. And she became a journalist and a theoretician and later a leader in the Communist Party. She's most well known for her te- her 1949 text and into the neglect of the problems of the Negro woman, where she talked about the ways in which Black women are oppressed and exploited as Black people, as women, and as workers. She did a lot of work at the Women's Commission. Uh, she was an adamant peace activist. She critiqued often Wall Street imperialism, warmongering, all of the elements of racial capitalism that I mentioned earlier. She was indicted by the U.S. state because she was denied naturalization because of her membership in the Communist Party. So she was indicted with other communist leaders in 1951. 
she was ultimately imprisoned and then deported under the McCarran Act because the McCarran Act allowed for the deportation or the revocation of citizenship of anybody who advocated the overthrow of the government by force or violence and belonging to the Communist Party meant that you advocated the overthrow of the government by force or violence. And this, again, this advocacy had nothing to do with actions, only with ideas. So if you gave a speech, if you wrote, you wrote about it, if you belonged to an organization. So the, both the Smith Act, the Alien Registration Act of 1940, and the McCarran Act, which is the Internal Security Act of 1950, made it such that freedom of association, freedom of assembly, and freedom of speech were undermined if you were a member of the Communist Party or if you were a member of a quote-unquote front organization. You argue that it was the way that Jones's radicalism combined the position within capitalism of black people, workers, and women, this form of triple oppression that made black working class women a triple threat to the system. Jones wrote, quote, The bourgeoisie is fearful of the militancy of the Negro woman, and for good reason. The capitalists know, far better than many progressives seem to know, that once Negro women undertake action, the militancy of the whole Negro people, and thus the anti-imperialist coalition, is greatly enhanced. What does Jones's political analysis and the government's response to it, what does it reveal about what certain groups' positions within the capitalist system says about their potential role in challenging or overthrowing it? Well, what she noted about Black women is that It's not that Black women are objectively revolutionary, but what she argues is that because Black women were partial or sole breadwinners, because Black women were overrepresented in the labor market, because of the type of work that they did, and because they often were not unionized, if this group were to become unionized, if this group were to become politicized and were to struggle against all those modes of oppression, then that offers a fundamental challenge to the system. And so in other words, it's their material conditions or their relationship to the capitalist mode of production that made them the most militant. And she also notes that Black women are also largely in women's clubs or in organizations. So she was always advocating for the party to capture this group of like women who were in these bourgeois organizations like the National Association of Color Women's Clubs or the National Council of Negro Women. And also black women made up, you know, a majority or plurality of the black church. So they were already, they already had the types of organizing skills there. It was just the the political ideology that was missing. And so she recognized this. She recognized the ways in which Black women were instrumental to proletarian struggle. They were often being overlooked or often being ignored because they weren't the quintessential white factory worker. And because they often worked, you know, in the service sector, so as domestics or in informal labor, which was often overlooked when it came to thinking about who should be unionized and who should be afforded particular types of labor protections. And so Claudia Jones, alongside people like uh, Esther V. Cooper Jackson and Louise Thompson Patterson and um, Dorothy Burnham, really worked to illuminate how the marginalization alongside the oppression and exploitation of Black women really hampered the working class struggle and the anti-imperialist struggle more broadly. Then there's C.L.R. James, an extremely important thinker and leader from Trinidad who arrived in the U.S. in 1938 at the invitation of the Trotskyist Socialist Workers Party, which he, not that long after, split from and helped found what was known as the Johnson Forest Tendency, which emphasized the role of independent Black struggle in challenging capitalism. Revealingly, James was targeted by the U.S. state, like others, under the McCarran Act, which targeted communists, a political group that James was staunchly opposed to, and yet James was ultimately deported nonetheless. 
why did the U.S. government find James to be such a threat? And what does the fact that this distinction, that James was not involved with the CP and in fact was very much opposed to it, what does that reveal that the U.S. government considered that seemingly important detail to be entirely irrelevant? Well, I think it just reveals the sloppiness of the U.S. state. You know, they don't really care about, they don't care if you're a Trotskyist. They don't care if you're a quote-unquote Stalinist. They don't care if you're a Maoist. Like, all that radical shit is just all the same to them. And so I, I'm not a CLR James scholar, but I wrote about him to for that very distinction that he is targeted under these anti-communist laws. The fact that he was both black and radical that was enough for the U.S. state. They didn't care if he was a Trotskyist or a former Trotskyist. They cared that he was a Black person who was advocating for Black empowerment and working class empowerment. And that is a sort of dangerous combination to the U.S. state. Finally, let's talk about Paul Robeson, who was targeted as though he were an alien, even though, of course, he was a native-born U.S. citizen. Who was Robeson? And what about the combination of his artistic skill and celebrity with his outspoken radicalism? What about that made him so dangerous to this image that the Cold War liberal American state was exporting to the world, to the decolonizing world, so dangerous that his passport was canceled in 1950, not to be reinstated until 1958? Paul Robeson was sort of like the first modern superstar. So he was an athlete. He was a singer. He was an actor. He became radicalized in London, I want to say in the 1930s. He was a, an advocate of peaceful coexistence between the Soviet Union and the United States. And because of his influence and his world-renowned the United States found his struggle on behalf of workers and on behalf of Black people and on behalf of oppressed people more broadly to be especially dangerous. And he was a polyglot. He spoke many, many different languages. And he could sing in many different languages. And so there's a way in which he he was able to reach many different groups of workers. So he just, he was a consummate internationalist in that way. And he made a speech in 1949 that was misconstrued by the Associated Press, where he essentially was saying that Black people will be very reticent to go to war on behalf of a country that oppressed them against a country that has shown themselves to be much more respectful of Black humanity and Black rights and indeed a society in which racial inequality and gender inequality have been eradicated. And so the United States thought this was a traitorous statement. And then they really began to target him in earnest to the point where there was something called the Peekskill Riot in 1949, where he, when he was scheduled to sing at a concert hosted by the Civil Rights Congress. He and all the attendees were attacked by the Ku Klux Klan, attacked by white war veterans alongside the police. <laughs> so police participated in and abetted this attack. And then this was on August 27th, 1949, the next weekend, they held a concert in protest, right, to show that, you know, they would not be scared off by these these white terrorists. They were attacked again. And then the governor accused those who were attacked and brutalized as being the, the aggressors and as fomenting a communist plot, right? And so Paul Robeson was harassed, surveilled, and they attempted to discredit him. And many people did, like the Du Bois, many people did sort of abandon Paul Robeson. He still had tremendous international support. But, you know, the, the U.S. government ruined his life primarily because he was a staunch advocate of peace, African liberation, civil rights and human rights for black folks. I could go on and on about Paul Robeson, but he just an American, you know, freedom fighter who was punished for challenging all of the things that the U.S. state stood for. I want to finish by talking about your work on Black and Africana studies. 
Black studies departments, you write, first emerged in the late 1960s. What sort of black politics of that era and black youth politics in particular did did black studies in academia grow out of? Black studies was predicated on a demand for a more relevant education. So a challenge to Eurocentrism. It was predicated on intellectual, but also a political and economic space for black people to challenge white supremacy and to redistribute resources at every level of the academy. So from the Board of Regents down to the janitors, they wanted to see more Black people included in, but also prioritized in these institutions. Black studies was meant for Black people to have control over the curriculum, over hiring, over all aspects of what it meant to be a student at that time, but also to redistribute resources from the institution to surrounding communities. And so there was this idea of gown in town. So bringing together the campus with communities so that Black people could be trained with the cultural, political, but also technical skills to go back and uplift uh, the race, so to speak. And so there was a combination of cultural nationalists, revolutionary nationalists, and third worldist politics, so to speak. And so alongside the struggle for Black studies was also the struggle for different types of ethnic studies. And at UC Berkeley and San Francisco State, there was a struggle for a third world college. And so all across the country, and even at historically Black colleges and universities, there was these demands for a space of Black knowledge production that was deeply rooted in what was going on beyond U.S. campuses. And also these struggles were anti-war. They were anti-colonial, of course. They were anti-imperialism. And oftentimes these Black students understood themselves as internally colonized subjects. And so, of course, there were liberal and bourgeois elements within Black studies. And this is what ultimately won out. But it was initially a, a very insurgent and militant and counter-hegemonic movement to fundamentally transform higher education. Speaking of that element, you write that the professionalization of Black studies in the 80s coincided with a cultural turn in the discipline. Why did that cultural turn take place? What were its consequences? In, In particular, what happened to the Black Marxist tradition? Well, in a general sense, what's happened is that we have the overdetermination of Black studies by cultural studies, literary studies, and history. But there are very few uh, political economists, and there is tends to be a dearth of analysis of sort of structural and material conditions. And I argue in my dissertation that this is a function of the, the way in which Black studies was codified and institutionalized. So I argue that it's a combination of area studies on the one hand and American studies on the other hand, and that these came together to shape the curriculum, epistemology, and focus of Black studies, especially as it moved to to professionalize through the development, for example, of PhD programs and through the move from programs to departmentalization. And so this wasn't a linear move. Some institutions automatically got departments, some got programs, some got centers, and this is still the case today. But, you know, essentially as departments wanted more recognition as a means of getting more resources for their units, this often resulted in de-radicalization. So students began to have less and less power. These units became delinked from surrounding communities. There was a push for everybody to have a PhD. And these were things that were not necessarily present in the initial founding of these Black Studies programs to the point where we get where we are today, where you have to have a PhD. There's very, very few people who are left teaching in Black Studies who do not have a PhD. Again, there's not the same 
activist or community orientation. And, you know, we could probably count on one hand, maybe two hands, the number of like political economists who are in Black studies as compared to, let us say, cultural studies, literary studies, and historians. And you argue that this culturalist approach is a more comfortable fit for the university as an institution at at the risk of setting up a t-ball for you to just like effortlessly knock out of the park. Why is that? So again, my argument has to do with Black studies takes on the function of American studies, which started off as American civilization studies, which is basically a form of cultural studies, the way in which the United States narrate itself as a as a Western civilization. And so likewise, Black studies becomes a, a Black linear progress narrative to offer up a vindicationist narrative from slavery to freedom and to produce scholars and to produce types of knowledge that are not really threatening to the status quo. And this is the case despite attacks by, for example, the Trump administration or or particular right-wing folks who, it doesn't matter what Black Studies does, it's always going to be under attack. And so this can obfuscate the fact that a lot of Black Studies has very little relevance beyond the academy and doesn't necessarily have any reach beyond the academy, not even in the realm of policy. But the attacks from the right are because of racism and white supremacy, right? And so they have these stupid arguments about reverse racism or whatever. So so part of what, you know, my generation of Black Studies scholars, I think those of us who are trained in Black Studies and those who are not necessarily trained in Black Studies, but who are committed to the project are trying to return not only political economy in a sort of radical, critical political economy or Marxist analysis to the field, but to also move Black Studies beyond the academy so that we are producing knowledge in creating spaces of, of marinage, so to speak, that are relevant to regular, ordinary people. So I think that our historical task in Black Studies is to democratize knowledge, to redistribute resources, both intellectual and material resources, and to take our job as as intellectuals as a responsibility. I always repeat this quote by Walter Rodney that, you know, academics are enemies of the people until proven otherwise. And the ways in which we prove otherwise is by not reproducing the specifications of knowledge that are rooted in sort of class hierarchy, false narrations of of merit, you know, and reproducing work that doesn't even really matter, that only reproduces the sort of the reigning epistemologies. Lastly, where do things sit now for Black and Africana Studies? You're currently in residence at Michael Dawson and Megan Ming Francis's Project on Race and Capitalism at the University of Chicago. Is is Black leftism making a comeback in the academy? I think that Still, in the context of the academy, Black radicalism is an object of inquiry, but many people do not share those politics. But I do think that there's a small and growing cadre of folks who are committed to a radical politic and are committed to having relevance beyond what you know what you might call the ebony tower. But I still think that we're we're a long way off, and we just we need to continue to to do that work to decriminalize, so to speak, Marxism and specifically Marxism emanating from Black and African scholars like Walter Rodney, like Claudia Jones, like Amilcar Cabral or Kwame Ture, Louis Thompson Patterson, all of the people that we've been talking about, but to also make radicalism not just a fad, but but a commitment to building a world, as they say, right, to each according to their need, from each according to their ability. Well, Sharice Bird and Steli, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the conversation.
Cherise Berdenstelli is a visiting scholar in the Race and Capitalism Project at the University of Chicago and a professor of Africana Studies and Political Science at Carleton College. I will link to some of her work that I read to prepare for this interview in the show notes. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that the discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in minds of the aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of black skins, signaled the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and this week also by the great Jesse Brenneman. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Izzy Olive. Our senior advisor is Theo Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a really friendly review. Those reviews ostensibly help introduce us to new listeners. What really and truly does that, though, is you just telling people that you know in real life why you listen to the show, why they should listen to the show, why you like the show, why they might like the show, etc. Please do make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this podcast up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. 